0: We are growing increasingly distrustful of what is real. Recently, a Harvard professor at Harvard Business School was put on administrative leave, and her tenure is under review for data fraud. She and another colleague were exposed by a blog called Data Collada, who do investigative scientific research and have made a name for themselves by exposing the problem of replication error. In a recent post on the Harvard issue, they quipped, two different people independently faked data for two different studies in a paper about dishonesty. <laughs> Trying to prove some facts about Dishonesty proved too difficult to do without being dishonest. And this whole event illustrates why we have such a hard time trusting those who are supposed to be authorities. Nowhere was this more clear than in COVID, brought to you by Trust the Science and our collective trust in our institutions continues to go down and down and down and down. And the church is not faring much better. What the once saved trust but verify is now more like doubt and question everything. And the church then comes with a message. We preach a message that demands trust. It's not a Not trust in a proposition or propositions, but trust in a person. Along with a widespread skepticism over almost everything, there's also the problem of what our culture has defined as outdated ethical standards, particularly our sexual standards that Jesus and his disciples taught. And how, then, given our current cultural moment, With a lack of trust and a lot of skepticism, how can we convince people to trust in Jesus? And why would somebody trust in him? And it's issues like these that Jesus addresses when his authority to teach is challenged by the religious leaders of his day. They were the cultural elite, the ones who were setting the standards they were the ones who clashed with Jesus over his teaching, and specifically over his authority, who gave you the right to declare that this is the authoritative word of God. You didn't go to our seminary. You're not in our presbytery. We don't recognize your Authority And through this confrontation, we learn two reasons to trust the teaching of Jesus. First, he is authorized to teach because the Father has sent him for this purpose. And the message he brings is not his own. It comes from his Father. And second, his teaching embodies the true intent of the law. By embodies, I mean he practices what he preaches. He actually lives it out. And not just the letter, but the spirit of the law, the true intent of the law. Since Jesus is authorized to teach the law, his interpretation gives its true intent. If you are able, please stand with me. We're going to read together from the Gospel according to John chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for this, your word, and for the authority of your Son, not only to declare to us your word, but Father, he lived your word. He perfectly embodied the true intent of your word to shape and mold his people to be conformed to him. And as we come this morning to behold him, to learn ourselves to trust in him, We ask that our whole lives would be offered up and that we would be conformed to his image. For we pray this in his name and amen. You may be seated. Remember last week that Jesus had a confrontation with his brothers. They're trying to get him to go up to the feast because they want him to make something of his ministry. They want him to finally get his name out there and do the work so that people will recognize him. And Jesus says, I'm not going. I'm not going to this feast. And what he meant by that is I'm not going up with the pilgrims. I'm not going up with this great crowd so that I can make a name for himself. But then in the middle of the week, he does go up. He goes up and he examines, he walks among the crowd, somehow disguising himself, and he hears the different responses to people have to him. Some think that Jesus is good, but others think that Jesus is deceiving people and leading the people astray. And now, in the middle of the feast, Jesus does the most confrontational thing you can do. He goes right to the temple and he begins To teach in verse 14. And as usual, this stirs up controversy as the religious leaders question where he received his authority to teach the things that he is teaching. That's in verse 15. However, the teaching is not his, or at least not his alone, for he was sent by the Father with authority to teach in verse 16. And the proof he doesn't seek his own glory. He's not after making a big ministry or a name for himself. He's there to declare a message he received from his father. That's in verse 17 through 18. And then the religious leaders think Jesus goes too far when he exposes the root of their hatred of him in verse 19. And that prompts a discussion on the validity of his teaching which Jesus ably shows that he is the true interpreter of the law, showing its true intent in verses 21 through 24. The theme of this whole section is authority. Who gave you the right to teach? But but what I want you to see is that the teaching of Jesus is eminently trustworthy. Why? Why can we trust the teaching of Jesus and how? Because he is sent and authorized by the Father, and because he is teaching his teaching interprets the true intent of the law. so first notice that we can trust Jesus we can trust his teaching because he is sent and authorized by the Father. You see, John does not tell us what what Jesus is teaching. Uh, the other gospel writers do uh, they Uh, Marvel at his authority. How can you teach with such uh, wisdom and depth of understanding when you have not been taught, when you've never learned these things? And and by that they mean they've never sat under the influence of another rabbi. You see, what would happen is a rabbi would gather a group of pupils to himself and he would teach them. He would teach them all of his own interpretations of the law. You have heard that Gamaliel interprets it this way, but this is how I interpret it. And they would learn from him his interpretations of the law. And all the rabbis did this. And they, some of them made a name for themselves based upon their teachings and their reputation. But Jesus did not do this. Jesus did not go and sit under a rabbi to learn the law. And when Jesus speaks, what does he do? He just teaches. He says, you've heard it said, that's a quote from the law, but I say unto you. He doesn't say, you have heard it said, and you also heard it said from Gamaliel, and you also heard it said from Rabbi Saul, and you also heard it said from, but then I say to you. No, he just gives the law, and then he gives his interpretation of it. No one ever did that. So you can imagine that when he begins to do it, they question him. Wait a second. How can you speak like this? How can you declare authoritatively? How can you teach when you do not have the credentials to teach? Not only did he upset their interpretation of the law by not sticking to their traditions, and that was the important thing. You have heard it said from this rabbi, and we're going to maintain this tradition. Jesus cut aside all the traditions, but also he did not have the right credentials. He did not go to their seminaries. He was not ordained in their presbytery. The Jews therefore marveled in verse 15, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Maybe you've had the occasion where someone comes into your workplace or into the place where you've carefully worked out to be an expert. You you have developed yourself, some skills in your area, and then somebody new comes in and, and begins to disrupt that. They begin to threaten your place in this ecosystem, this employment, this job, whatever it is. They begin to unsettle you. How how do you feel threatened, probably, right? Angry. Ready to prove them wrong. And of course, the the internet has made everyone an expert. I know I'm sure that this is especially annoying in the medical field, right? We get ten minutes on WebMD and we've we've got a doctor degree, right? And then we go in and we've got our, our interpretation of how they should treat us. And I'm sure it's frustrating. It's frustrating for the doctor to have somebody who has no experience who and they have worked their whole life in this field. And then that person says, this is how I want you to treat this, how I want you to examine me or care for me. Everyone is an expert and everyone is qualified to comment on every aspect of life. Now, I'm not, I think there's, There's some good that comes from uh, the the spread of knowledge, and I think that can be helpful. I'm all for the ways that the the Internet has decentralized knowledge, so it's not hold off into groups that guard it and keep it from other people. My point is that it's easy to see how Jesus' behavior would create controversy among the religious leaders. I know that when I'm reading a theological work, the first thing I do is to check out the author's credentials. Where did he study? Under who? What else has he written? Knowing, things, knowing these things will help me place him in the stream of theological development. Who we learn from influences our interpretation. And that's true in life as it is in our study of Scripture. But Jesus kind of arrives on the scene without going through the usual channels of development. He says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And that completely unsettles their whole system. They've carefully created And the natural question that they all have is, who died and made you king? It's it's ironic because he is king. And they're speaking to the creator of the universe, the one who spoke and the world came into being. But They don't recognize that. Jesus is very quick to respond. He said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And if that sounds cryptic to you, that it's not meant to be. Jesus says, I teach with authority because I have been commissioned to teach. The things I teach, I did not make up. They're not mine. They come from the one who empowered me to come on his behalf and teach the people of God. Jesus is an apostle. In the, in the sense of someone who is sent on behalf of another with a message. Jesus doesn't even give them a chance to come up with a response before he's launching into his own proof. And you can easily spot someone who is teaching on his own authority. And it's not a lack of seminary, seminary or ordination, as important as those may be. It's whether or not he seeks his own Glory. Or the glory of God. And that of course is what separates Jesus from the religious leaders of his day. They in fact were seeking their own glory. Jesus knows it and they know that he knows it. And they're frustrated at that. How can this upstart see through our carefully crafted facade. To know that we don't have the authority to speak. And yet we do because we're motivated by gaining our own glory. As the story unfolds in time, they would soon realize that he was telling the truth. Not only did he shun glory, but he willingly went down the path of shame. There has never been another person in history who deserved the path of glory more than Jesus. And no one who received shame who is so far above that verdict. But he did that. So that he could take your shame and give you his glory. He walked the path of shame so that you don't have to. He who deserved all glory willingly went to the cross so that you don't have to live in shame but can receive his glory. Satan had tried already in Jesus' ministry to tempt him from the path by offering him glory without suffering. If you looked at Matthew 4 and and the temptation of Jesus over and over again, he tries to distract him from his mission of suffering and dying for the people of God. And so he goes to the cross, despising its shame to win glory for God and the people that God gave him to glorify. And in that way, he reframes the meaning of glory, turning it right on its head. Gentile Christians had even more difficulty with the concept than the Jews that the righteous are blessed. That is, they should receive glory while the wicked suffer was a common understanding. While it's generally true that God does bless the righteous and he punishes the wicked in, in this life that is often inverted. We see the righteous are the ones who are suffering and the wicked seem to be getting away with it. But Jesus proved that his suffering was his glory. Since in it he won the salvation of the world. But as we saw last week, that same path remains for all of his saints. Paul embodied this in his ministry of suffering. Bearing in his body the marks of Christ. Which I take to mean the marks of suffering. That that was his glory. Listen to these Just a few verses from scattered throughout his epistles. In Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.9 For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Second Corinthians four five: For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, seeking not our own glory, but the glory of God, should not characterize, should characterize all ministers of the gospel. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is what Jesus is displaying. And that is the proof that he's not speaking on his own authority, because he's not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory of the one who sent him. And even even Jesus models this disposition by, by seeking the glory of his Father, because uh, Uh, Because of that, because he seeks the glory of his Father, he says, I am true, and I have no falsehood in me. True with no falsehood means trustworthy. Why should you trust the teaching of Jesus? Because he was sent, and he was authorized by the Father to teach. And by teach, I mean to declare authoritatively the will of God. Primarily that consisted of giving the true intent of the law. And calling the people of God back to faithfulness to him under that. Notice that in in verse 17, Jesus puts the onus for accepting his claim to, to be an authoritative teacher back on those who receive his message. This has come up repeatedly in the Gospel of John. It all comes down to your response to Jesus. When you hear him, how do you respond? That tells a lot about who you are. John is writing to convince the people of God to believe in Jesus. We we keep coming back to that over and over again as he tells us why he wrote the gospel. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in him, you'd have life. Either he is sent from God with authority to teach or he's an imposter. But the difference is clear in their response to the teaching of Jesus. He says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. It's quite interesting the way Jesus frames this. He basically says that if you're aligned with God's will, then you will accept my teaching as coming from God. And that means that a response to the teaching of Jesus requires a faith commitment. One commentator put it brilliantly this way. He said, quote, God's will is not simply to be thought about and assessed. As if God is the object we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like of him. The faith commitment envisioned here, this moral choice is properly basic and renders impossible any attitude that sets us up as judges of God's ways. And this means that the truth is self-authenticating. Not with a vicious circularity, as if it has no meshing points with the external, examinable world. Does not Jesus himself invite us to believe on the evidence of the signs? But in the sense that finite and fallen human beings cannot set themselves up on some sure ground outside the truth. And and thus gain the vantage from which they may assess it divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from inside. From that perspective, the person who chooses to do God's will discovered that Jesus' teaching articulates it, that Jesus does not speak on his own, but as the word of God. End quote. That, That commentator is saying that what Jesus is saying is that you cannot assess the truth of God. You cannot sit as a judge over the word of God and saying, I don't accept that as the truth. You have to come as one who sits under the word of God and accepts it as the word of God in order for you to know, in order to, for you to be aligned with the will of God. Faith places us under the Word of God. And accepting the teach of, teaching of Jesus requires the same. It's not for you to stand and judge over Jesus and say, I, I, don't, I don't know, you don't have the authority. You don't have the right credentials. You didn't go to the right schools. You're not saying the things that align with what I want you to say. The unbelief on display in these religious leaders Is the opposite? They're standing above the word, in judgment over it, and they—they have done this through their um, all their traditions, and they didn't realize that they're actually they're actually doing this to the Son of God, the one who made them, the one who perfectly reveals the Father, in much greater clarity and detail than any of the prophets who came before ever could. They don't accept his teaching largely because they don't accept the implications for his teaching. They don't accept the implications for living that Jesus requires of them. They want orthodoxy, right, teaching, without orthopraxy, right, living. They want to believe the right stuff, but they still want to keep their heart off in this private sphere where God doesn't touch it. They want to say the Apostles' Creed on Sunday and then live like hellions the rest of the week. And conveniently, their interpretations of the law did not unsettle them. It didn't change the way they lived. That leads to the second reason you should trust the teaching of Jesus. And that is because his teaching gets to the very heart of the law. Not merely the letter of the law, but its spirit. And not in word only, but also in deed. He lives consistent with the spirit. As opposed to those who obey only the letter. At this point in their confrontation, Jesus shifts to bring back into the discussion the previous events. Remember that Jesus had done his ministry up in Galilee. And why? Why did he go up north To minister in Galilee. Because they were seeking to kill him. And it was not yet his time. And he remained up there. Well why were they seeking to kill him? Well remember because on the Sabbath. He healed a man who was lame. And he commanded him to take up his bed. And to walk. Which which went exactly against their tradition. Of carrying a burden on the Sabbath. And not only that, but when he began to explain himself, he identified himself with God the Father as if they were one, making himself almost equal with God. And for that, they wanted to kill him. And so Jesus went where ministry would be more fruitful. But now he returns. And as he returns and he's confronted again with them, he draws their attention back to that previous episode. Why, did you, why are you seeking to kill me? And that's all the way from back in, in John chapter 5. But they, they deny that anyone desires to kill him. They're trying to conceal their true feelings about Jesus. And they do this how most do. When they know that they're on shaky ground, they resort to name-calling. Oh, this guy has a demon. We can discount him. No, one would, no one's seeking to kill you. You're still alive. So it must be a demon. And this... This tactic of name-calling and, and attributing Jesus' claims to demon possession is, is, is desperate. It's a desperate attempt by individuals to, to get attention away from the question. Why are you seeking to kill me, but yet you say you're upholding the law? The law says, thou shalt not kill. How can you live with such inconsistencies? We read that Jesus' interpretation from Matthew 5. I, I almost wonder if that's what he's talking, if that's what he's teaching at that moment. Maybe he's saying, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus radically shows the spirit of the law is The fact that the desire of the sin is sinful. Just the desire, not even having carried it out. The angry impulse to want someone dead goes against the spirit of the law. Anger is a corrosive. It's it's the acid that eats through its own container. Why does it seem that everyone goes about on a hair trigger that at any moment could go off? Anger. The angry Karen unloading on the poor unsuspecting service worker who just got her drink wrong. We've all seen it. It's ugly. The person who will not let you merge in, clinging so tightly to the car in front of him just so he can shave off that extra 12 seconds. The angry troll online who comments viciously on everyone's posts. None of it fits within the category of righteous anger. Most of it revolves around inconvenience and our our desire to have the world spin around us, exposing the root of hatred, which is firmly fixed in pride. Proud Christians who are angry are a blight on our testimony. Jesus puts his finger on this form of ugly anger when he asks them to examine their motives. They love the law. They love it. They've made their living knowing it and interpreting it and making it known and teaching it. And they want to make sure that everybody obeys the letter of it. They built elaborate fences so that people don't go over it. So they don't break it. But inside, they are a teeming mass of sin that is just waiting to boil over. They love Moses, but they totally miss the intent of the law, which they prove by their desire to, to kill Jesus just because he healed a man on the Sabbath. Remember that the source of their frustration was Jesus' command to the lame man to take up his bed and walk. When he obeys and then goes walking through the temple, No doubt joyfully the Jews see an audacious man who dares to break the Sabbath. But they fix all of their anger on the man who commanded him to do it. They have reduced the Sabbath to several rules of what you cannot do. Meanwhile forgetting the true intent of the law. But Jesus exposes their hard hearts. He says if you love Moses so much. What about this scenario? Moses gave you circumcision. Actually, it was just the fathers. But, but to keep that law, you go to work. Making sure that he is circumcised. But when I want to make this man completely healthy, you get angry. Do you even understand the point of the Sabbath? Do you not know that the Sabbath was made to restore man to full health? After working, which I did for the lame man, fulfilling, I fulfilled the true intent of the law. And yet you are angry with me. What gives? You hypocrites, stop looking at what I'm doing through natural eyes and start looking at me through eyes of faith. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And the Jews and us miss two important things when they Judged by appearance. First, what the law was actually meant for. Which was to lead people to human flourishing. It was to make our life better. Not harder or worse. God is a God of grace and mercy. But second, we miss how righteous righteousness really was. And how impossibly far short We fall from reaching it on our own. Why did God give the law? Well, we first need to define our terms. By the law, it's clear that Jesus is speaking about the Mosaic Covenant. Not merely the Ten Commandments. Was the law given so that if Israel kept it, they would be saved from their sin and be brought into the age to come? Was it a badge that marked them as separate from the Gentiles? Like some sort of ethnic barrier. We keep this law because we're better and different than you. Or was it a tutor designed to lead them through their repeated failure to Jesus Christ? Paul says it was the latter who in Galatians shows that the law led the people of God to Christ, so that through it they learned two things, how, how sinful they were and how they ought to live. But more often than not, the Jews missed that the law was given to lead to a society that functioned according to God's standards. It was given as a rule of life. But by turning it into a work, they reduced it to a set of rules which ended sucking the life right out of it. All of a sudden, the Sabbath principle, which was laid down in creation and given a very concrete application and became a burden to the people that they had to bear, leaving the religious leaders as their enforcers, not of the law that leads to life, but one that leads to death. And in that case, the general principle that if if it gives life to someone, that it might be consistent with the Sabbath, was missing. So when Jesus makes a man whole, the infraction is his insistence that he carries his bed. Is the man going to sell his bed? Probably not. He's probably just taking it home. Does he carry beds for a living? Obviously not. So what, how has this man broke the Sabbath? Yes, it's true that Jeremiah encouraged the people not to bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it into the gates of Jerusalem. But in that sense, they're either selling whatever they're carrying in or they carry those things for a living. And both are not consistent with what? Rest. With the principle of being recreated so that you can again labor for six more days. They missed the point of that. They missed what Jesus was doing. In healing the man Jesus fulfilled the spirit of the Sabbath. He made him completely healthy. He restored him to full health. Which is what the Sabbath was designed to do. Jesus gave us a picture of that. And they reviled him for it. They wanted to kill him for it. Jesus is consistent, not only as teaching about the intent of the law, you have heard it said, but I say to you, but but also in action. He lives the intent of the law perfectly. He calls the Jews to judge with right judgment, meaning not that they, they, they just recognize the true intent of the law, but that they begin to live it. It's not enough just to say, okay, I understand the law, but how do I put... The law into practice. How do I live it? Jesus is trustworthy because he practices what he teaches. He's the only person who can say that he does so perfectly. As Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. You would think, and we are adept at doing so, that the scrupulosity of the religious leaders would be harder than the spirit of the law that Jesus prescribes. But that, that's actually not the case. It wasn't the fact that they kept their traditions that made their life hard. That was actually much easier than what Jesus was calling them to do. It's quite easy to make a list of rules to follow, especially when they have little to do with the heart. What's easier? only walking a certain amount and being careful to do nothing that is work or helping a brother in need that might bring you dangerously close to breaking a sweat, work. Which is easier, to refrain from killing your brother because he did something that angered you or to love even your enemy by turning the other cheek so that he may strike you again? Is it easier to keep the marriage bed free From adultery or guard your eyes and thoughts from lust. Jesus does not repudiate the religious leaders because they were too righteous, but because they were not nearly righteous enough. But we do this weird thing when we read Jesus in his confrontation with the religious leaders. We see him advocating for a form of Christian liberty which makes obedience to the law meaningless. We think, see, he doesn't care about the Sabbath, so I can do whatever I want. But that is not what Jesus is doing. Rather, he is showing that the intent of the law goes well beyond what you thought it did. And in order to be faithful, you must recover not merely the letter, but the spirit of the law. What was Jesus' intent? Why should you trust Jesus' teaching in an age of distrust which I think will only get worse. We need to have answers for why we can trust Jesus. Why He isn't just another teaching guru offering His take on the world. He is sent by the Father and authorized to teach. The proof is that He doesn't seek His own glory. Why should you trust the teaching of Jesus? Because He opens up the true intent of the law. Exposing sham obedience to the letter which leaves the heart Completely unchecked. And the proof? He practices what he teaches. His life is an embodiment of the obedience to the Father's will. How will you respond? Will you trust Jesus? Recognizing that His teaching is not His own? Aligning yourself with the will of God? Or will you continue in unbelief to reject Jesus and His teaching? Declaring Him by your rejection... To be untrustworthy. See, there's no no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You can't just be ambivalent. Oh, I don't know. You either accept Him as being the one who is authorized to teach on behalf of the Father the true intent of the law, or you don't. May God open your eyes so that you trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, open our eyes to behold your Son Jesus, who was sent by you to declare to us, to reveal you to us, to preach the gospel in his life and in his words. And he continues to do the same today, even as we sit thousands of years later in a remote place of the world compared to where he was, hearing the same message. Calling on us to make the same choice. Will we respond in faith, trusting that Jesus can and does teach? Or will we reject him in unbelief and turn away as being somebody who doesn't fit our qualifications? Oh, Father, unsettle our hearts, unsettle the ways that we try to keep the law that are only the letter that don't come nearly close enough to what you really intended. And as we do and fail and fall so far short, may we see the only one who was perfect, who perfectly kept every commandment. May we see Jesus, who himself went before us, giving us his glory and his righteousness, because we can't do it on our own.